team, this is Dara Lynn from The Weeds. I wanted to let you know that we are doing another round of Ask the Weeds Anything. Matt, Sarah, and I are going to be answering questions that you folks have submitted sometime in the near future. This is your one and only announcement. You have until May 14th to submit questions. By the time we record the next episode on Tuesday, we will already have closed submissions. So here's what you do. Go to The Weeds Facebook group. Join the group if you haven't already. It's a really good group. It's one of the few good places on the internet. And submit as part of the thread that our engagement lead, Julie Bogan, has posted your Ask the Weeds Anything question. If we select your question to answer on the podcast, we might contact you and ask you if you could record yourself asking that question to us so that you can actually be not only submitting to the weeds, but recorded on the weeds, something you will be able to brag to all of your friends for time immemorial. So again, if you have a question for us, and you totally should, we're interesting people, I promise, go to the Facebook group, drop it in the thread that Julie Bogan has posted, and do so by the 14th. Thanks, team. Please don't put that in pre-roll. <laughs> Never say not to put something in pre-roll. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, here with Dara Lind, and also joined today by Andrew Prokop because... We want to talk about Michael Cohen, and Michael Cohen has been in the headlines a lot this week for some of his consulting work. Uh, AT&T put out a letter uh, this morning right before we recorded officially saying that they were sorry to have hired him, but there's so much – this they didn't a, explain why they were sorry. They, yes, they didn't say what they were sorry about exactly. But I this mean, is, there are so many reasons. Take your pick. That they spent a million dollars on him not doing anything. That they, you know, are now getting dragged for hiring a dude. Like, right. But I feel like this is a classic Vox situation in which there are now a bunch of news developments that involve Michael Cohn and money and the Essential Consultants LLC, but that Unless you've been following this story for a long time, you may be totally missing like why this is interesting to people who cover the White House or people who cover Robert Mueller's investigation. And Andrew has done a, a bunch of great work on Michael Cohen. And can we just like back up like like who is Michael Cohen? Like why is this an important person? So Michael Cohen is obviously important to us because – for about a decade, he was a very high-ranking figure in the Trump organization. He's often said to be Trump's personal lawyer, but it's unclear how much legal work that actually entailed. His his job is often described as more of like a, a fixer. Uh, and in some situations, it often seems like what he's really doing is just just trying to make he said this actually trying to make whatever trump wants to happen happen and you know if there are things that trump doesn't like it's his job to make them go away so he got some press in 2015 for profanely threatening a reporter who was going to write a story he didn't like threatening like i will fucking destroy you and 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 that kind of thing but the Michael Cohen story really goes back further because he has an extraordinarily colorful backstory from long before he even entered Donald Trump's orbit, which may or may not have played a major role in how he got into Trump's orbit. So he was the son of a Holocaust survivor and he grew up in Long Island. He went to 
Thomas Cooley Law School in Michigan, which is um, ha- has been ranked the worst law school in America. He got out of it and passed the New York bar. And his first big job basically was working at a personal injury law firm. And over the next decade and a half, uh, that's how long it took for him to join up with Trump, he was involved in all sorts of these extremely shady situations from from the shadier side of the law, let's say. There was a big situation where people were crashing cars in New York, in and around New York, and and injuring themselves because the state had a no-fault insurance law that essentially guaranteed payouts and Crooked doctors were involved who would say that these people were really injured and deserved a really big payout. And apparently the whole thing was run by Russian organized crime. Nobody has said that Michael Cohen was involved, you know, doing illegal stuff here. But he did represent a lot of the people who were involved in this situation. He also got big into the New York taxicab business, somehow put up a lot of money to buy a series of taxi medallions that you know it's it's sort of an investment but at the time it was it was thought that it would just it would be easy money it would keep going up and Cohen himself ran a fleet of taxi cabs too and then there's this one time when there was this NHL hockey player of of Russian ethnicity and he was supposed to give a friend a loan of several hundred thousand dollars and Michael Cohen deposited the check and then the check disappeared and no one could say what happened to it. Basically, he's he has a lot of connections and not entirely irrelevant here is that his wife, who he married in the 90s, is from a family of immigrants from Ukraine. And there is this seedy underworld of criminal activity that comes out of Brighton Beach, New York. And there's a lot of stuff going on, basically, that that may relate to some of the activities that I just mentioned. There are big sums of money flying around, basically. There are a lot of ties between him and the shadier side of the law. And then in 2006 or 2007, he joins up with Donald Trump and becomes a a vice president at the Trump Organization. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is striking. You know, I mean, leaving aside even the allegations that Cohen was involved in illegal activity, something like that, but it just, it paints a picture, right? Like there are a range of lawyers out there, right? Like there's this new guy who Trump hired as his his, uh, legal counsel. Emmett Um, Flood? Emmett Flood, right? So like Emmett Flood went to like Ivy League law schools, clerked for Supreme Court justices, worked in the White House counsel's office. Right. That's like that's like one extreme of the legal profession. And then there's like Michael Cohen went to the worst law school in America, was practicing plaintiff side personal injury law, which is like the lowest rung of the legal profession, was not doing that in a super duper successful way. He wasn't like running huge multi-million dollar class action cases against the biggest corporations in America. Like Michael Avenatti. Right. He was doing little random car stuff with such little success that it wound up being that a lot of his clients were involved in a scam. Right. He, he was he was not like the guy. It was called Operation Boris. Right. <laughs> Big organized Russian insurance. <laughs> yeah, he was not he was not a guy who anybody in New York was seemingly saying 
hey, if you need really, really sound legal advice, you should pay top dollar to go hire Michael Cohen. Right. Like there's a lot of attorneys in New York City practicing a lot of different kinds of law and nothing about this history of like outer borough hustling personal injury attorney who is able to plow his earnings into a mid-sized taxi company is suggesting like this guy is a top-notch lawyer. Like you give him all credit, right? Like he's working hard. He's he's doing somebody. He's somebody needs to represent like immigrants from Eastern Europe. Like taxi business is a potentially legitimate way to earn money. But this is not like this is the top lawyer in New York City. I think right, the one thing that, that is, would suggest that is that he did have his hands on a lot of money. Like people were throwing a lot of money at him. I mentioned the the check for the hockey player, but also he and his family, which was his his wife's family, which was apparently had a lot of cash too, started buying up a lot of property in the early 2000s and the taxi medallions weren't a cheap thing to buy either. Like like he he had access to some money. Right. right. But so but I think we can gather that he's a with- successful fixer or a successful businessman, not necessarily a successful lawyer. And this matters a lot because when you have all those resources, you're not just representing your client, you also have a separate set of interests as a, an actor in your own right, which turns out to be super relevant in the context of the president's lawyer being under investigation and his role as the president's lawyer and his role as someone under investigation uh, colliding in uncomfortable ways. But I, I do want to ask, because I think that there can be a lot of innuendo and bullshit thrown around when we get to the questions of the ties between immigrant enclaves and crime generally and with the Trump administration and people from, you know, the former Soviet Union in particular. Uh, Is your judgment of this whole like Cohen's wife, Brighton Beach thing, you know, I, I trust you as someone who like has a good nose for this stuff. Is this and actually legitimate, there are reasons to believe that this is an underworld that Michael Cohen was at very least familiar with, if not actively involved in? Or is this just, we don't really know, and because of Cohen's professional connections with, you know, Russian nationals, this could be a thing? You know me, and and I don't, I'm not part of like Russia conspiracy Twitter or anything like that. But But I do think that it's not, it's not speculative to say that Cohen was very closely tied to many people from the former Soviet Union in the 90s and 2000s who ended up in serious legal trouble. Like that that's just a fact. He's he's one hop removed often representing often in business with or related to people who got into financial trouble like charges based based on financial improprieties or both of his taxi cab industry partners, uh, he, he had one for the first decade and a half or so, and then and then he got another one, are, are both from the former Soviet Union, and, and they've both gotten into big trouble with the law. There, there's yeah, a lot. There's basically. a pattern. Yeah. yeah. All right. That is, I am satisfied. I mean, he, you're right. He, he's doing business in this. It's not just that he's representing them. Either like like these these are his business partners. They're right. they're not like they got in trouble and they called him as a lawyer, which would be a normal thing to do. Like they are instead working with him on investment projects. And well, and, and this is all what I was trying to say that like whatever Michael Cohen was succeeding at doing out there, it was not like legal practice as conventionally 
construed, right? Like, like he's an attorney, like he has a JD from a very bad law school, but many people who have law degrees in America are not like actually practicing lawyers as their main line of work. And that appears to be the case with Cohen. Like he had a lot of, he, he earned some money, but then he was like running businesses, not like Michael Cohen and Associates, a law firm. Right. Yes, so, he think, did. He did a very brief stint at a big law firm in New York. He he joined there for a couple months, and then he left very quickly and and joined Trump right after right. that. So then, for some reason, Donald Trump's basically real estate and brand licensing company decides that they want to hire Michael Cohen. And the question of what that reason is is also an interesting thing too, because. For a while, the story was, okay, you go back to 2007. That's the first time Donald Trump and Michael Cohen are in the same newspaper story together. It's a New York Post story, and it's a story about how there's this guy named Michael Cohen who started buying up a lot of Trump properties. Uh, He's gotten his business partners to do it. He's gotten his family members to do it, and he's quoted saying, Trump properties are a great investment, and then Donald Trump himself is quoted in saying, Michael has really good investment and business judgment. And, you know, it, it's it's like a, a silly little piece planted in the New York Post. Uh, but the gist is that, like, he just super loved Donald Trump's properties and got himself, his family members and his business partners all to spend big amounts of money to buy condos, apartments and whatever in New York. Now, there's another story, another version of events, is that Cohen bought a condo in a Trump Tower, and Trump ended up at war with the condo board for some reason. They, uh, the condo board basically thought he was mismanaging financially and stuff like that, so th- there, were, there was a sort of condo board rebellion. And then Trump wanted to regain control of the condo board. And Cohen was on it. He was he was uh, the treasurer, I believe. And Cohen in in this in this version of the Rashomon tale, Cohen volunteered his services to Trump and said, "Like I will do this for you." And then he effectively, not clear how, threatened whatever, maybe uh, got back control of the condo board to Trump. And then Trump was so thrilled with with the good work that he did that he offered him a job in the Trump organization. Now, version three of the story is that it wasn't Cohen at all who caught Trump's interest, that instead it was his father-in-law, the Ukrainian immigrant who's, who's been in trouble with the law. And so, so this, is, this is laid out in a new book by journalist Seth Hatena. It's called Trump Russia, Definitive History. And, and he's been researching this stuff and, and talking to former investigators who who have looked into the Russian mob in the past. And what they're basically claiming is that it was the father-in-law who was really the guy who was steering these investments into Trump properties. And he, as a favor, asked Trump to give his son-in-law a job. So that that's kind of version three. I don't I don't know what the true version is maybe some of them are totally wrong but but it's it's telling that there's still like some mystery about how this guy even joined up with Donald Trump in the and, first and, place and part of the the backstory of this right is that like before before Trump was a politician right and before like Trump and Russia was like a scandal there are these stray 
narrative threads, right? Where like Donald Trump Jr. is saying like a disproportionate amount of our cash is coming in from Russia these days. And Eric Trump is saying on a golf course that like we're not affected by the credit crunch in the 2008 recession because we have all this money coming in from Russia. And like it's also true that a lot of Russian people seem to have purchased Trump real estate at some point in time. And Michael Cohn and his extended network of family and associates are part of this trend, whatever it was, of like some kind of people with ties to the former Soviet Union deciding that Donald Trump's real estate ventures were a good thing to be involved with. And it's, of course, like it it is not illegal to purchase luxury real estate. That's why there are luxury real estate companies. But it is often something that people who are criminals, I mean, it's like you want, you want to get it right, right? It's like if you are an international super criminal, it is likely that you are going to want to park money in luxury real estate versus other possible things that you could do with it because it's a, it's a way of sort of purging the asset, the underlying cash of its its origins. But that, of course, doesn't mean that it like per se, it's illegal to have foreigners buying your your Florida real estate developments. Like that's it's a completely it's a it's a line of business that lots of people are in. There are perfectly normal reasons why people want to buy condos in Manhattan or like beachfront property in Florida. And this gets you know, particularly screwy in the case of actual Russian nationals, you know, because there are lots of reasons that an oligarch who is very rich in a country where if the, you know, if Putin turns against you, a lot of assets can be seized, a lot of things can go very badly for you, would want to park assets outside of Russia. At the same time, many of those same oligarchs have a lot of their money through dealings with the Russian government that may or may not be entirely on the level. So... Right. And, and it, I mean, it's also a question of standards, right? Like a lot of things – you can describe almost everybody who's prominent in Russian business as like, aha, they have close ties to the regime. But like that's just how Russian right. that's the cost of doing society business. operates, right? Um, and yeah, and like people can be trying to put assets out of the country because they're actually hedging against the regime, like any any number of, of sort of reasons there. Um, but so anyway, okay. so, so Cohen is working for Donald Trump. And, and like what does he do? He does all sorts of things. He's, he's a man who wears many hats. He was involved in several sort of investment projects in, or attempted investment projects because many of them seem to have failed. He, uh, what, one of the first things he did for Trump is that he tried to do some sort of mixed martial arts event. Um, then he was involved in some attempted project in the Meadowlands. Uh, in New Jersey, in Long Island, and and then when you get to more recent years, Cohen starts to be involved in trying to drum up big Trump projects abroad, uh, particularly in the former Soviet Union. He uh, went to places like um, Georgia and eventually eventually to Moscow during the Trump campaign itself. But, you know, he would fly to these places and and engage in, you know, discussions about a potential Trump tower in, you know, Baku or or wherever. And uh, I guess the idea is that we still don't have a totally clear understanding about how Trump's business works. But in general with these projects, most of the cash comes from the people who live there. And Trump himself is kind of putting in his his name. He wants the big tower. He wants the press. And, and Cohen was sort of trying to make that happen. And 
in most cases, they didn't end up happening. But he's been flying around and doing that. And then when Trump flirted with running for president in 2011, Cohen was out front as as his main political advisor then um, in the 2015-2016 campaign. He took more of a behind-the-scenes role except when he would occasionally – scream at reporters or go on TV and say weird stuff. But, you know, he's, he's always been the guy in Trump's orbit. And and the thing that we – the other thing he did that we didn't learn about until pretty recently is that he was involved in these hush money payments to people who could be problematic to Trump. And this wasn't just in the campaign. So Cohen enters the Stormy Daniel story back in 2011 because she – is threatening to come forward or wants to sell her story at that time. And she actually, I I believe, does tell her story to In Touch magazine. And then Cohen threatens the magazine, threatens a lawsuit, uh, and they don't end up publishing at the time. Okay, so. so, but so like the basic picture, right? So like one thread of this is that Michael Cohen is a guy who both before and after going to work for Donald Trump, one of his specializations as a businessman is like having relationships with former Soviet emigrant communities and then in the former Soviet Union himself. So if you are interested in the question of Donald Trump's ties to Russia, Michael Cohen is a person where those ties might be happening. Yes. Right? Like that's 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 his expertise. He's not like a legal mastermind. He like does deals and he knows a lot of Russian and Ukrainian people, right? Yes. We should take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Stormy Daniels. I really love it when I can dig into a topic that fascinates me, and that's what I do with The Great Courses Plus. It's unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you, from leading professors and experts in their field. You can stream over 10,000 lectures, which is a lot, in virtually any topic. they got history, psychology, economics, but also stuff like you, you could try to learn to draw, practicing mindfulness. They've got lectures about that. It's amazing. So watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus anytime, anywhere. Uh, we're recommending uh, that this week uh, that you should check out is Capitalism versus Socialism, Comparing economic systems. This is like a fascinating class. You know, it takes a, a sort of a broad view of, of this kind of question of markets versus democratic control of economic systems. You know, they don't just like stay on the plane of abstraction. They delve into, you know, different countries, healthcare systems, trade wars, uh, taxation, social services, like how, how it all works. It, it really lets you think about this in a kind of profound way. Okay, so I want you to have the excitement of learning from the Great Courses Plus too. So I've arranged a special limited time offer for you. Here it comes. One free month of unlimited access to enjoy any of their lectures. But to get it, you've got to use our special URL. So start your free month today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Check it out. This is Yochi Driesen from Worldly, Fox's weekly podcast on the most important stories in the world. I've worked in journalism for nearly 20 years, and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by the news right now. There's President Trump and Vladimir Putin. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. And there's the North Korean nuclear crisis. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then there's the Russia investigation. The Russians may have something on him personally uh, that they could always roll out and make his life more difficult. Want to make sense of all of this? Subscribe to Worldly, 
We're unpacking all of these stories and more every week. Come find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. So Stormy Daniels tells In Touch magazine that she's had this affair with Donald Trump. And then Michael Cohn threatens the magazine. And then, like, like what happened? This was a while ago, even though it's it's been dominating the news lately. So, like, what, what's the Stormy timeline? Well, okay. So the – she – I believe she only – had sex with Trump once, and this was in 2006, uh, but she says they talked on the phone a lot afterward. We're getting really detailed about the timeline here. So so then in 2011, Trump is thinking about running for president, and Stormy wants to sell her story. And so she tells her story, at least, to In Touch magazine, and they are thinking about publishing it, and, and Michael Cohen threatens to sue them um, if they publish it, and and they don't do it. So it's on the shelf for several years. And then we get into the campaign itself, and we have to go away from Stormy for a little bit because there are these other payments that Michael Cohen is involved in first. So in November 2015, there is a Trump Tower doorman who is saying that he's heard a rumor or he knows that Trump impregnated an employee uh, a coworker of his, and um, and has a love child, and he's threatening to sell that story. And then Cohen arranges that he would be paid about thirty thousand dollars to sell the story, exclusive rights to the National Enquirer, which then does not publish it. Right. So then we move to August twenty sixteen. Playboy, former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal comes forward and or is about to come forward and and claim that she had an affair with Trump and she gets hooked up with the National Enquirer too and she gets a big payment to sell her story and the exclusive rights to them and Michael Cohen arranges this and then they don't publish the story. And, then, and this is strange because typically right. a newspaper would either – I mean normal newspapers don't pay for stories. Tabloids do pay for stories. But you would usually think that you would pay for exclusive rights to somebody's story. So that you could publish it. Right. A major political <laughs> sex scandal, which about a presidential candidate is something that is you could, definitely right. – you could, you could either the say – same tabloid that gave us the last major sex scandal involving a presidential candidate with John Edwards in 2008. Right. And so so this is weird. It's weird for National Enquirer to be operating as a hush money venue f- on Donald Trump's behalf. And there have been explanations offered for this. Trump has been friends with the Enquirer's chairman for a long time. He's been a source for the Enquirer supposedly for a while. And uh, there is a practice in the tabloid industry called catch and kill where – Apparently, this isn't just about Donald Trump. It's also about other big celebrities who want to hush up scandals. And and if the Inquirer agrees to get exclusive rights to the scandal story and then not publish it, then they can get stuff from the celebrity afterwards. Either leads to more stories or like a cover appearance, an exclusive interview, that kind of stuff. But right. you know, having all this unfold in the middle of a major presidential campaign with the Republican presidential nominee is is not usual. That is um, that is a new thing. So then we get to Stormy in October 2016. She wants to come forward. She's 
she's talking to a bunch of different journalists and Michael Cohen gets in touch again. And we should also mention there's a, a side character here who is Stormy's attorney at the time is Keith Davidson. He was involved in the Karen McDougal payment as well. And he 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 seems to be working with Cohen on making these stories go away. And and now Stormy has questioned whether he was truly representing her or or in cahoots with Cohen on something. But what ends up happening is that they draft uh, an NDA in which Stormy will be paid $130,000 to not tell anyone about her story about Trump. The NDA is drafted with pseudonyms. David Dennison is Donald Trump's pseudonym, and uh, Peggy Peterson is Stormy Daniels' pseudonym, and uh, Stormy signs it. There's some question about whether Trump signed it. We've never seen proof that he actually signed it, and this is now a, a matter in the courts because Stormy is suing to try and get the NDA struck down. But in any case, Michael Cohen arranges $130,000 to be sent to Stormy's lawyer. But before he does that, he sets up a shell company called Essential Consultants, LLC. And, you know, it's it's just, I guess, if you're in the business of sending shady-seeming money around to places where you don't want that money to be found out or your ties to it, you set up a shell company. So incorporated it in Delaware. And so Stormy's lawyer, Keith Davidson, gets $130,000 from Essential Consultants. What's weird about this is that Cohen didn't decide to, I guess, you know, leave that shell company behind, but instead he decided to keep using it in 2017, once Trump had been elected president, to get big payments from major corporations. Right. But so let's let's keep the let's keep the thread on on Stormy for a little bit, right? Okay, so like Michael Cohen is representing Trump in this all. And Stormy Daniels like emerges into US politics in 2018, right? With her new lawyer, Michael Avenatti, and initially just like a claim about the terms of the non-disclosure agreement. Right. Basically, she wants to like wriggle out of this and like go back and tell the exciting story of the one time she had sex with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think the the Wall Street Journal reported that the agreement existed, and and they were the ones that broke the story. It's not clear where they got it. I didn't get the sense that Stormy or, or people on her camp were the source for this. It, it seemed to be coming from, you know, the financial institutions or, or or some sort of financial report or something like that. But but in any case, the, the story basically became known that Cohen arranged this payment to Stormy so that she wouldn't tell her story about an affair with Trump. So I guess she decided, well, now I I would like to come and tell my story too now that this is a big matter of, of public discussion. And, so and, and at first blush, I mean, this just didn't necessarily seem like that big of a deal. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, maybe she's going to do an interview. Maybe she won't. Like, it's, it's an interesting story, right? Like, the president of the United States is illicit affair with a porn star that he paid money to cover up. Like, it's like, you know, we don't have to be, like, too holier than thou about it. But also not, like, 
earth-shattering stuff, right? Like, if you had told me two years ago Donald Trump once had a short affair with a porn star and also paid her some money to go away and not talk about it, I wouldn't have been like, oh, my God, right? Like, my my mind is blown, right? Yeah. I mean, any other president, obviously, it would be it would be a quite more uh, shocking story. Right. But, like, but this happens in October, which is to say it happens, like, after we already know that the president was caught on a hot mic talking about grabbing people by the pussy, like... Right. But there was a thread of a legal question yes, about this, which lends it a, a certain extra uh, something. So the question is whether the $130,000 from Cohen should have been declared as a campaign expense, because this is about a week and a half before the 2016 election. Donald Trump is a major presidential candidate. And we have a system of campaign finance law in the United States where if you are spending money to um, to to promote a political candidate, a federal candidate's prospects, you're supposed to declare it. You're supposed to, you know, if, if you're spending it as outside money, you're, you're supposed to set up a, a super PAC or whatever and report it to the FEC. Or you're, you're supposed to actually donate it to the candidate himself, in which case you have to abide by contribution limits of and, a couple and, thousand dollars. And even if it was a loan, right? I mean, so there's, been all, the, there's been all this wrangling, like maybe Trump paid him back, blah, blah, blah. But there's like, there's basically no way out of this, right? Like if the payment was to help Donald Trump win the election, which, you know, plausibly, even though, I mean, you know, people can say it's like, well, you know, like, would this news of an affair really have changed their minds? But, you know, you remember the timing, you remember the news environment, right? Like, obviously... It certainly would have changed the story from James Comey's letter. Right, rather rather than doing day three stories about the fallout of the Comey letter, we would have said, well, we'd already had two days of stories about the Comey. You know, like, this is interesting, too, right? Like, it would have been a big deal for at least a couple days, and the election was almost— Upon us. Upon us. So, you know, like, it it, it seems like— And we do have indications that, like, the fact that the Comey letter was the big story for the last few days was one of the reasons why, contrary to all expectations, the president— Right. So it it, it seems like this was a campaign thing, right? Like, it's it's four days before the election, whatever. Like, it, it would have been a big deal. Some money changed hands. It was not reported properly. This is not like, you know, you go to Leavenworth for 20 years— if it wasn't reported this, at all. But, yeah. but, it, but it is illegal. Right. And Rudy Giuliani, like, admitted that, the, you know, or rather he he said publicly that it made sense for exactly this reason. And then, of course, was forced to, walk, to, to clarify that he did not have knowledge of the president's or Michael Cohen's actual thoughts on the matter. It was just his read. But, like, Rudy Giuliani is correct. This is the reasonable explanation that you would draw from these set of facts. A nuance in this is that the Trump camp's official position is that Stormy is lying. Right. Right. Which is important here because that's how the reason Rudy wound up saying the wrong thing, right, is he is trying to explain, well, why would you pay off this woman when she's lying? Yeah. Right. And so what because, you know, obviously, if you're a rich guy, if you make it known that just any old person can call up In Touch magazine and be like, oh, I had an affair with him 15 years ago. And then they cut you a six figure check <laughs> like you're going to you're going to have a problem. Right. So Rudy's explanation for why you would give in to that kind of extortion 
which makes sense on its own terms, is like, look, it was like a week before the election day. You know what I mean? So it's like, let's just hustle, make it go away, and like worry about the long term later, which makes perfect sense, except if Rudy's right about that, it's also then it's illegal. illegal. <laughs> yes. So Trump, with another of this, it's like they're trying to thread the needle such that explaining why Trump didn't know about this payoff, the payoff wasn't about the campaign, but it also wasn't illegal on Cohn's part, but also the affair didn't happen. And it's like very hard for all of the different things that Trump wants to say about this to be true simultaneously. This is often a problem that the administration has in messaging, and it has it on on policy as well. It's worth noting, like any attempt to get Donald Trump to stick to a particular set of talking points will always fail. And so the options are, A, to attempt to reconcile the various things that the president would like to say to defend himself at any given time into a coherent narrative, which will often obviously fail, or B, to gaslight everybody and pretend that the president is being entirely consistent and that there's nothing to explain, which Sarah Huckabee Sanders is extremely good at, but which the press can only really deal with for so long before they start just getting really frustrated with every single claim and doing their best to track it down. Okay, so now let's let's take a second break and let's talk about what we've learned this week. You know, if you're out there, you're probably like aware that life insurance exists, that it's a thing, that it, it's like a person's supposed to have. But surveys show that over 80% of people think life insurance costs about double what it really costs. And almost 100% of people think buying life insurance is a huge pain in the neck. Uh, but the truth is a healthy 35-year-old can get half a million dollars in coverage for less than 30 bucks a month. And getting life insurance doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be difficult because there's Policy Genius. Uh, Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. It just takes five minutes. You compare quotes from the top insurers, you find the best policy for you. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance, and they've placed over $20 billion in coverage, which is a lot. They, they don't just make life insurance easy. They compare disability insurance, renders insurance, health insurance, a lot of different kinds of insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it, which is great. Here's what you need to know. If you've been thinking about getting life insurance, and you should be thinking about it, go to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare top insurance, find the best policy for you. You'll be saving time, you'll be saving money, you'll be saving yourself hassle, and it is free. Policy Genius, because comparing life insurance doesn't need to be a pain in the neck. So we have Michael Cohn. He's possibly caught up in these, like, FEC violations. Uh, There's also a sex scandal in the air. Uh, Stormy now has this very aggressive attorney who's on television a lot and says a lot of stuff and uh, has this Basta hashtag that nobody's picking up on. Um, And he says rather dramatically that he has evidence that Michael Cohn received in the exact same shell company that was used to pay off Stormy Daniels that $500,000 came in from a Russian oligarch with ties to the Putin regime, right? Like he says this on Twitter. It's like a real like woe if true (laughs) kind of claim to make. And it turns out to sort of be true. It it is basically true. I mean, so somehow, we don't know how, Avenatti got his hands on financial reports about what Essential Consultants was doing with its money, who it was getting money from and who it was sending it to. So he posted a PDF online and not everything in that PDF is right, but, but the big stuff is all right and has all been confirmed at this point, which is basically that 
The oligarch in question is a guy named Victor Vexelberg. He has a big holding company in Russia called the Renova Group. Uh, he made his fortune in aluminum, but now has his hands in all sorts of things. And he his fortune is about $14 billion. And the money that went to essential consultants comes from – uh, a U.S. kind of affiliated company that that does investments for his Russian company and is run by his cousin. So that's like the Russian guy, and 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 it's worth pausing on this for a minute because like Michael Cohen was getting half a million dollars from a company that's that's very closely tied to a Russian oligarch while the Russian investigation is going on and while Donald Trump is president, which is – it's pretty strange. And we know that Mueller is looking into this too because two months ago, before we publicly learned about this payment, Vexelberg flew into the US and Mueller's investigators stopped him at the airport and questioned him, apparently searched through his electronic devices too. So – so Mueller is is interested in this Russian oligarch, his money to Michael Cohen, his cousin who runs the U.S. operation, also gave a quarter million dollars to Trump's inauguration. And Mueller asked about that, too. We don't know if there's anything actually illegal happening here. But, you know, if you're following the money, it's 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 a good place to ask some questions here. I think this is something clever that Avenatti did, right, was if you actually have the full picture, right, which is that actually like a whole bunch of people were paying essential consultants, then the fact that one of the businesses that was paying essential consultants is this Russian company actually seems a little less striking, right? Like he's just like Avenatti's like a smart guy, right, by like leaving out the other aspects of the story, he actually made it seem in some ways bigger. Well, we also don't know what Avenatti knew and when he knew it and how he knew it. There are lots of questions about how Michael Avenatti, who is not, you know, a reporter, you know, how these documents happened to fall into his lap. There is some speculation that I find moderately persuasive that he's been getting leaks from somebody in the Department of the Treasury because the documents that he has are things that would require information from multiple banks. And so it's less likely to be coming from a bank than it is from, you know, somebody who would be investigating this kind of thing, which, if true, does raise some legit ethical and legal questions. Uh, But also raises, you know, means that it's not clear if Avenatti is doing this as a, you know, deliberate PR rollout strategy, or if he's just kind of posting documents on the internet as he receives them, and then the Times and the Post are scram- and everybody else is scrambling to follow up. That said, I sort of want to defend defend the honor of the the Treasury Department Financial Center investigators, which like this is the kind of thing where like I'm not saying they couldn't have leaked these documents, but like scour your LexisNexis for like past instances of leaks from from this group and like you don't you don't see it just kind of like Donald Trump's tax returns you know we're like well why doesn't that leak and it's like nobody's tax returns leak um by contrast the southern district of new york and the fbi office there like they leak stuff all the time that's a really good point no i'm not saying that they did it here but just like it would not be the craziest thing in the world for an fbi field office to leak something about an ongoing investigation that has happened 
very routinely Especially in American. an ongoing investigation that the FBI as an agency is under attack from a major political party for engaging in. Right. So I don't know. My my priors are to assume. No, that that's a good leaks point. That the point is that it's it's still very weird that they're leaking this to Michael Avenatti. Uh yes. No, but, we, traditionally, as journalists, I think we should stand for the principle that you should leak things to journalists rather than just Stormy Daniels' lawyer. Uh, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But let's talk about the other payments. Yes. So he got he got $1.2 million from Novartis, a uh, Swiss pharmaceutical company. He got $600,000 from AT&T. Both of those were paid out in monthly installments over the course of a year. And he also got... I, I believe $125,000 from Korea Aerospace Industries. So these are these are the big transactions that we know of from essential consultants, the payments that were being made to Cohen. And the, the company's explanations for why they hired him have, have been all over the place. But the commonality or the obvious answer is, is that they wanted access to the Trump administration and Michael Cohen knows Donald Trump very well, and that is some knowledge that could come in handy in a new confusing year for Washington policymaking. What's strange about this, though, is that, like, Corey Lewandowski has succeeded in cashing in on his connections to Donald Trump as a consultant uh, in the in the wake of Donald Trump's unexpected electoral victory in, like, a normal kind of way. Like, he started a consulting company that, like, isn't secret. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they, like, make it known that if you want to hire somebody who has connections to Donald Trump and who can – I mean, there's like a range of reasons that you might hire a political insider, right? Like you might be hoping that Corey will weigh in with Trump personally in your behalf, or you might be hoping that Corey can give you some insights into like what kinds of arguments Trump is likely to find persuasive or what people in the vast bureaucracy of the federal government are the ones who are actually empowered to make a decision on something like this. Because, you know, these are complicated things. And there's – I've seen some people like, ah, it's a bribe, you know, and like – it's like it's work, right? Like paying people to do work for you is a normal part of human life. Paying people to give you advice on like how you should try to lobby the federal government in a way that will work as opposed to a way that will not work is like not the most high-minded endeavor in human existence. But it's not like an obviously illegitimate kind of thing to do. But normally the people who purport to be able to offer those kinds of services are like quite above board about it, right? Like they want you to know that if you want to hire Corey Lewandowski, like you can do that, right? Like like where you find him, like who you write the check to. And it's very strange to me that Michael Cohen was seemingly calling up companies trying to tell them that they should hire him to like be their guy in Trump America, but not like announcing to the world that this was a business that Michael Cohen was now getting into. Like, either that's very unusual or else there's, like, some huge subterranean aspect of Washington that I've been completely misunderstanding for the past well, 15 years. Well, so I think it is unusual. I, I do want to just say he he did announce in April 2017 that he was he was forming a strategic alliance with the law and lobbying firm Squire, Patton Boggs. Uh, he had an office in their office space and 
He said he would refer clients to them. The thing is that these are not the clients, it seems, right. that he referred to them. That's the problem here. So so it was known that Cohen was like in the sort of the influence peddling space. But the, the fact that he – and also it was before this was announced that he supposedly called up the CEO of Novartis and said, hey, I can give you access – to Trump if you pay me. So that's that's a little Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think we can definitely all agree that this is unusual, but I'm not sure that, I can understand why this would be like a logical extension of the lobbying mentality in this particular case. Because as we've mentioned on here before, the normal ways that you would get policy made in an administration by like knowing who the influential bureaucrats are, knowing about the regulatory process, that sort of thing, matter much less in an administration where the decisions are being made by one man, apparently, and he is a very mercurial human being. So, like, you know, we we saw reports between the election and the inauguration of just how totally at a loss a lot of corporate America was about how to deal with this dude, you know, how uncertain they were about what was going to happen, Uh McKay Coppins of The Atlantic was talking about how like he got approached by someone who was saying that if he wanted to sell himself as a consultant on Trump, he could get make a lot of money because everyone was just did not understand what made this man tick. So I think that in that space, you know, if you're a, a if you're AT&T instead of trying to throw more money at lobbyists who are part of the swamp that like Trump is apparently hostile to, you say, well, the way I can get things done in this administration is to take advantage of the fact that the president has a lot of people who stay in his circle who he talks to a lot. And on Cohn's side, I can kind of understand thinking, well, the president often gets mad at people for no particular reason and, you know, will like take up and drop contacts very easily. And any influence with the president is going to put to target on your back for members of the president's family, for other ambitious people in the White House. So maybe it's not a good idea to make it known that the things I'm talking to the president about might be things that my clients are asking me to do. Like maybe that puts more of a target on my back. I don't know. I mean, this gets to a much bigger problem of the only way that you you could get things done in this White House is through influence peddling. I think that this, you know, that does make it more worrisome than the typical lobbying process where there, you know, it's a question of where the influential points in an established decision-making process are. But, you know, I think it's a reasonable outgrowth of the way that Donald Trump operates. But I, I think we should also keep in mind that Novartis says that they hired Cohen agreed to a yearly contract, had one meeting with him, concluded that this was a bad idea, and then continued to pay him for the rest of the year because sources connected with the company are telling reporters that they were afraid of making Trump mad or something like that. I, I think there are there are several ways one could read that. Like if Michael Cohen sat down in them in March, he could have he could have just been a complete idiot and had nothing useful to say. That's one possibility. Or he could have been suggesting things that may have been legally problematic in their view. And and they realized that this was a road that would be dangerous to go further down and and decided to just (laughs) sort of, you know, keep on paying him, but, but not really 
follow up on on what he was suggesting. Uh, we don't know is the thing what he did to them, and, and I think there's a risk of of trying to normalize this a little too much because on one side you have oh Cohen was being bribed by major companies, and then they respond oh well. Everyone in D.C. does stuff like that, and Cohen was just a little sloppier about it. What's so unusual? But not everyone in D.C. has the FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office, raid their offices, has it revealed that their emails have been tapped for several months. And, you know, he's he's the subject of a major investigation here. And it's not just about Russia. Uh, this part of it was handed off to the Southern District of New York. And like there are signs that the government suspects that this was not an above board operation for reasons beyond just he didn't appropriately make disclosures, disclosures on campaign finance for. Him. Well, and, and that's why I, I want to call attention to the fact that like Cohen's squirreliness about the existence of this company is Odd. And I feel like the companies that have been caught out, the, the AT&T statement in particular, I just thought was a strange statement. Like I as a professional journalist feel like I could sort of have lawyered them or PR personed them a better statement than that. But I also know that AT&T like has good lawyers and good PR people working for them. And I assume there is some reason that their statement about this is so enigmatic as to like why are they saying it was a mistake? Like it's weird for a big company to be like this was a mistake because it's not like they like – leaked their users' personal information and they're apologizing, right? Like AT&T, precisely because you are 100% allowed to hire lobbyists and consultants to try to peddle influence in Washington, it is strange to find yourself having been, quote unquote, caught doing so and to then go apologize for it. And like AT&T is particularly interesting because they've had a very specific regulatory issue with the Trump administration, right, which is that during the campaign, they announced this plan to purchase Time Warner. Uh, It became a subject of political controversy right away. Donald Trump very vehemently opposed it in terms that were not really um, legally all that proper, Uh, although there were a lot of other – Because he hates CNN. Yeah. There were a lot of other questions flying around about it. The CEO of AT&T had a number of like direct one-on-one meetings with the president, but they didn't say it was about this. But like – Antitrust decisions are not supposed to be made based on like who has the president had meetings with or not. Um, The Justice Department wound up suing to block the merger. The the trial has been ongoing this summer. People who I've spoken to who are like experts in this field, they say that they were – surprised to see a Republican administration bring this case, but that it wasn't an illegitimate case to bring, that this was the kind of thing that's sort of in the periphery of like they weren't sure that the government would win the case. They thought it was unusual for a Republican to be bringing a case like this, but that a left-wing Democrat, they would expect, would have tried to win it. So it's been a little bit Odd, right? It's like one interpretation where you like pretend to know nothing about Donald Trump is like, aha, Donald Trump has taken a surprisingly progressive stance on antitrust enforcement, which is like maybe. But there's like no other regulatory area 
that Donald Trump has taken a surprisingly left-wing stance on. There's this allegation from seemingly from AT&T's lawyers like put out in the press that Trump tried to pressure them into saying they would sell or spin off CNN somehow. None of that has made it into the trial. Like the trial has been fought on very like normal kind of grounds. Um, whatever AT&T paid Michael Cohen to do, it did not like work in this specific case, right? I'm like, I don't know what Novartis thought Michael Cohen was going to do for them, but the pharmaceutical industry seems totally fine with Donald Trump. Like, AT&T has an actual problem with the Trump administration. They spent a lot of money on Michael Cohen, presumably to try to help them with this, and they're, like, not explaining, like, what they thought Cohen would... Because unlike some of these other companies, AT&T can't say credibly that they just, like, needed some general info about Donald Trump. Like, their CEO had, like, multiple meetings with the president. They're, like, in a big legal battle with the Trump administration, right? Like, there's clearly something that they thought Michael Cohen was going to do for them. He either did it or he failed somehow. And they're like, they're not explaining. They're just like, they're like, oh, we're we're sorry. It was a big mistake. But like, what was the mistake? Right? I mean, like is is interesting to know. Um this isn't all that mysterious though, right? Like it seems pretty straightforward that AT&T was concerned about Trump's statements on the campaign trail. They tried to pull whatever levers they had available to them to prevent the president from getting involved with the antitrust division. They are now arguing because it helps either because they genuinely believe it or because, you know, they think it helps them that this was a politically motivated thing. And now it's very difficult for them to make that argument either in a court of law, you know, on appeal or whatever, or in the court of public opinion, because if anyone brings up the question of politicization, it's going to be DOJ saying you guys tried to lobby the president to make this problem go away. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think, again, I, I think there's the question of whether Cohen suggested something illegal, right? Yeah. As Andrew said, with, with Novartis, right? Like, you know, is it the case that Cohen doing his, like, fixer thing indicated to them possibly bullshitting that there was, like, something they could do that would make this problem go away and they decided not to do that? Yeah. Right? One, like, one that big- would be the interesting angle here. Yeah. And one big thing is what Cohen did in return. And uh, the Southern District of New York has said in court that they're investigating him for matters related to his business practices. So this would certainly fall under that umbrella. And also, I I think we should not forget how odd it is that this particular slush fund uh, or whatever it is, essential consultants, I mean, the Stormy Daniels payment happened before Cohen brought in all of these companies in 2017. But then there was another sex scandal hush money payment in late 2017 after all this other money was coming in, uh, which – so the story goes that uh, Elliot Broidy – a higher up at the RNC and a big Trump donor, defense contractor, and so on. Uh, Cohen was also an RNC finance co-chair. Yes, they were both RNC finance co-chairs. And then Elliot Broidy supposedly had an affair with a, a Playboy playmate and impregnated her. And then she had an abortion. And then there was a, a hush money payment, a very big hush money payment of $1.6 billion that would be 
paid out over a certain period of time. And and it's a weird situation uh, because the woman has the same lawyer as Stor- uh, Stormy Daniels' first lawyer, Keith Davidson. Uh, and Cohen is apparently the guy who approached Elliot Broidy and said, we can hush this up for you. Davidson told me about this and we can sign this deal. And then they did it through they used the money that was deposited in essential consultants to start paying this sex scandal hush money. So so the the sex scandal thing is not just in the past tense and you know there are other theories on the internet's that there may be more to this story than we currently know. It but sure does seem weird that a, you know, an RNC finance chair who doesn't have much name recognition would be 10 times more valuable to protect from scandal than the president of the United States or the president to be. But also that the money, I mean, Elliot Broidy is a rich guy, right? It's like, why was the money coming out of Michael Cohen's shell company, right? Like, it's all very unusual. But, but legally speaking, right? So... Paul Manafort has gotten charged with a bunch of illegal activities that are not directly related to the 2016 campaign, but, you know, involve Russians. Right. Um, and, and those have been – they've been charged under the umbrella of the Mueller investigation. Right. Robert Mueller's team is bringing that trial and I think the, the common sense view is that their hope is that Paul Manafort will become a cooperating witness as Michael Flynn has and, and so on and so forth. The Cohen situation seems broadly similar to that, that like there may be stuff that he did that was illegal that involves him being an all-around shady guy who does – crimes and that he could be persuaded to cooperate with Mueller's investigation in exchange for leniency. But legally speaking, this is being handled by the regular U.S. attorneys in Manhattan and we don't really know what they are investigating. They have not brought charges. We don't really know why this has been kicked to them rather than done by Mueller. Right? Like we like we basically don't know what's happened. Yeah, I, I think we don't have a lot of visibility into what happened, but we've learned a couple of things. We learned that Mueller's people were asking Novartis and AT&T about this Michael Cohen money toward the end of last year, about six months ago. Uh, so they they were the ones who found out about it, This it seems. And they made, at some point, decided to make a referral to the U.S. attorney in Manhattan uh, so that they would take this over. It's not known how they decided to. Did Rod Rosenstein decide to take it out of Mueller's hands? Did they mutually agree? Did they decide it would be strategically beneficial to have this raid carried out by by a team that would be much harder for Donald Trump to fire or retaliate against than than Robert Mueller's own team. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of things could be going on there, and and I also think it's it's important to note that this doesn't mean that Mueller has given away all of the investigation into Michael Cohen. He seems to have given away the campaign finance potential violations related to Stormy Daniels and and whatever that hasn't been fully explained about his business practices in 2017 and SDNY has taken that over but you know we we've still been getting reports in 
recent months that Mueller has been asking witnesses about stuff Michael Cohen did in 2016. He's asking about Michael Cohen's discussions about building a Trump Tower Moscow, which occurred during the 2016 presidential campaign. And we didn't even really talk about that, but that's like a big part of the of the Russia scandal too. And, um, you know, the Steele dossier makes various claims about Cohen that he was involved in paying off hackers and traveling to Prague secretly. And, yeah, so where have we landed on Michael Cohen's trip to Prague? I think I feel like that's like the last interesting yeah. thread here, right? So like the Steele dossier makes a bunch of claims about Michael Cohen, right? He basically casts Michael Cohen as like a key intermediary between Trump world and Putin world. And it has a specific claim that he went to Prague to have a meeting with some Russian intelligence people, uh, which is like sounds like a cool like movie setting. Like that's that's where I would do like an international spy meeting in in my screenplay. Because that's a lie. You would totally do it in Bruges. Bruges? No, no, no. Because because Prague is at, is at the is at the nexus of east and west. You know, mm, it's fair, like fair, it's it's, fair it's, it's where it all comes together. Um, plus, like Bruges, it has really cool architecture. But then Michael Cohn tweeted the outside of his passport. So uh, so so the dossier says that after Trump fired Manafort, and there was a lot of scandals about Manafort. Cohen took over the the collusion account basically, and that he he flew over to Prague. Um, I, actually, the dossier is structured in a series of different reports with different dates, and and the the first report uh, says they're not sure which city it is. They they only say it's Prague in a later report, but. It, it, in any case, they heard that Michael Cohen had had traveled to somewhere in in Central or Eastern Europe to to meet with Russians and discuss like destroying evidence and then a later report claims paying off hackers that were involved and um, so this has been the centerpiece of the Trump team's campaign to discredit the Steele dossier from the very first day that the dossier was published by BuzzFeed, Michael Cohen tweeted, I have never been to Prague in my life and a picture of the outside of his passport. As the year went on, he he showed the inside of his passport to some reporters. And, you know, there, there have been a lot of questions about how convincing this is, first off, because... So to be clear, I went to Prague one time. And what happened was, was I flew to Vienna. Yes. I was in Vienna for a couple days. And then we drove to Prague. There is no Czech Republic stamp on my passport. This does not prove anything. That's just how European customs work. European countries are small. You can go from one to the other. Like, it's, to me, the fact that somebody would attempt to produce the lack of a passport stamp as evidence that they had not visited a landlocked European country is itself damning because it's so stupid. No, but like, I, I think he's gone further by saying he wasn't even in Europe at the relevant time, which which would be more yes. persuasive on his side. He, But he's also conceded that he has, in fact, been to Prague in his life. Exactly. Yes. Right. Which, again, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. I 
I was not in Prague in 2016. If somebody accused me of having a secret meeting with Russian intelligence in Prague in August of 2016, I would vehemently deny that. I definitely did not do that. But I, you would never catch me saying I've never been to Prague in my life because I have been to Prague, right? <laughs> and like, you know, I mean, it's tough. You know, it's like, you know, like, don't talk to the FBI. They can catch you up in lies with their like complicated investigative tricks. But this is not a complicated investigative trick. And this is also where it's re- important to remember that Theoretically, Michael Cohen is a lawyer. Like, he's the kind of guy who, in theory, has a degree and is accredited to be careful about what words are true and what words are false in settings where that thing might become legally salient. This is not like, it's not like you're just catching Joe Schmo off the street. This is someone who in theory is supposed to be good at this. And so the the incompetence or malice question is, as always, an incredibly salient one. So Prague lay dormant for like a year. Yeah, and he was so, so vociferous about this that a lot of people, including me, were, were basically like, okay, well, the dossier is probably wrong about this. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, like, there are, there are multiple possibilities. There are a lot of people named Michael Cohen. Wrong. Yeah, they could have gotten the wrong Michael Cohen. Or, or maybe he's just totally innocent and, and did nothing about this at all. But so then there was a report uh, in April by McClatchy, which said that Mueller is still looking into the question of whether Cohen went to Prague and has recently obtained evidence that he did secretly. Um, the story goes uh, back and forth a little bit on, on whether he secretly went to Prague or or went into the Czech Republic or it, it's a little unclear. But, but basically – that reopened the question. It's not clear who their sources were. They were anonymous sources. Mueller's team hasn't really been leaking, so it doesn't seem that this is coming from Mueller. But basically, the question was reopened. And then Cohen has since denied it again. Uh, and that's that's where things are on this. Like the the collusion investigation of Cohen – uh, Mueller has been asking about a, a plethora of things related to him, related to the Trump organization, and obviously he hasn't brought any charges yet. But I, I don't see any reason to conclude that the matter is closed at this point. Right, and and I mean the big sort of question here, I guess, is like what kind of legal exposure does Michael Cohen have? That, you know, we saw – I just feel like one of the sort of sub-themes of the Mueller investigation has been that a lot of like white-collar criminal cases have just sort of not been brought over the years. That these cases are hard to prove. They're very resource-intensive. The FBI has been told to prioritize terrorism. Um, They they like the national security brief. Um, Some Supreme Court decisions made it even harder to secure white-collar convictions. The Obama administration had some concerns about the economic impact of sort of bank prosecutions in 2009, 2010. But it's possible that if you have like a good reason to sort of shake the trees and bring complex white-collar criminal cases against people that like they're just cases to be – to be made out there, right? And that's like— Or at very least that not everyone is as careful. Like most of the reason that these things are so hard to prove is that you can FOIA 
you know, or you, rather you can subpoena all the emails that you want, and you're never going to get someone saying, let's do a crime. What we're learning from some of this stuff is that not everyone in Trump world has that level of care, and maybe some other people in white-collar industries don't either. Right. So, I mean, there's just there's a lot of subtext, I would say, yes. in the so reporting a- on Michael Cohen that, like, Michael Cohen is involved in illegal Russian mob activities and that, like, he could be charged with crimes arising from any number of these things he's done over the years and that could then be a avenue into Trump's inner circle for other information. Yeah, and yeah, so this is the question of will Michael Cohen flip and is that kind of the main goal of investigators here? And and the fact that this is running being run out of the Southern District of New York doesn't like preclude Michael Cohen flipping and offering information about Russian collusion or whatever. Like like he can he can tell prosecutors what he has if he wants to make a plea deal and and they they could refer it back to Mueller if if they want to. But one talking point going around lately is that Trump's people are more worried about the Cohen investigation than the Mueller investigation because I think there is a belief uh, or at least a claim among people close to Trump that they really don't believe that collusion happened. Uh, But (laughs) they're far less convinced that like every legal practice in Donald Trump's business over the past decade or so was entirely above board and they think that Cohen might – know some stuff that was not entirely above board and and could provide information on this and and so on. So like I mean a good example of that if you if you want to look something up at at home is Adam Davidson's story about Trump Tower Baku that Michael Cohn was involved with as were a number of other people in in the Trump organization and you know Davidson puts together I would say a fairly persuasive argument that there were violations of the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act involved in that, that the normal practice for people doing these kind of international deals is to like hire these FCPA compliance companies and Trump like doesn't do that and like rather flagrantly doesn't do that, like was on TV at various points being like this is a terrible law, like we should get rid of it. Like that there was some cognizance in his mind that there was this federal law that was potentially standing in the way of him and deals that he wanted to be doing that he wasn't doing the normal thing that companies do to avoid breaking the law here, that Michael Cohen like was there in making that deal. Um, Nothing about this in any way suggests collusion with the Russian government. In fact, the specifics is that they were sort of unwittingly um, assisting uh, money laundering by the government of Iran. Um, But, you know, but just like it's it's illegal. (laughs) Like it would it would be bad to – I think it would be a really bad story for Donald Trump if it turned out that like his daughter and his personal attorney and his companies were involved uh, in breaking federal law and facilitating Iranian money laundering. Although that would be absolutely consistent with like no collusion, all caps and many exclamation points. Like it's just just like you're, you're not supposed to – you're not supposed to do crimes. Right. You're, you're supposed to try super hard not to do crimes, in fact, in many cases, which is, you know, gets back to the bigger point about white collar prosecutions. Like the the problem that 
many conservatives have with the current criminal justice system is that there isn't a strong enough standard of mens rea or guilty mind or like deliberateness in a lot of white collar statutes in practice, like being able to prove violations still often revolves around intent questions. But when there's literally a thing, you know, when it's something like involvement in an election, you are, again, expected to have a team of lawyers making super sure that everything you do is above board in this regard. And there's evidence from, say, the Donald Trump Jr. meeting with the like Russian tied lawyer that they were not going through, OK, let's go jump through all the hoops that we have set up so that we can make sure that everything we do in this campaign is a legal thing. And Michael Cohen is a colorful guy. Uh, he... <laughs> He, he's not someone who's known for using extremely careful legal language, let's say that. He's also, according to one report, prone to taping his conversations with people. Uh, we haven't heard any more about whether investigators have gotten their hands on stuff like that, but that that would seem to be a potential next shoe to drop here if 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 he tapes people saying legally questionable things that, that could be I am not a lawyer my understanding is that taping your clients and especially talking to other people about ta- taping your clients is not accepted legal ethical practice I I think the gist here is that he was taping people he was feuding with in in Trump world and then like playing the tapes for other people I don't know if it was if it was his clients specifically but but I, I he he's not the most careful guy I guess we've managed to avoid discussing the whole thing here but like there's just a Big outstanding question, right? This was what what they were litigating the other day. Is like, is Michael Cohen like a practicing attorney at all? Right, right. Like, right. Like, like, does he have clients? Right, because when when this raid was executed, right? I mean, obviously, it is rare to raid a lawyer's office because there are presumptions of attorney client privilege, and it's dead. Yes, and 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 Donald Trump was very upset about this this raid. Um, he tweeted many times that attorney-client privilege was dead, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the government's argument is that Cohn was not really doing legal work. Right. And this isn't like a post facto argument. Like every indication is that to go through a, you know, no-knock raid on somebody's house without having bothered to subpoena stuff from them first, when that person is a lawyer, you are expected to get a warrant signed off by a judge that says, we have reason to believe that attorney-client privilege is being abused for the purpose of covering up a crime. Like, you can't just say, oh, we're not going to get the information we want to from this guy. There has to be, like, actual evidence that if you trust in, you know, attorney-client privilege, you are both perpetuating the fraud that this is an actual attorney-client relationship and allowing a crime to get covered up. Wait, and this, I mean, we should probably leave it at this, but but this is the sort of the fundamental, uh, uh, where the paths in the road on the Michael Cohen situation diverge, right? It's like, it is extraordinary to have this kind of activity be approved, right? And so one read of it is this shows how off the rails the deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump has become. Like they are clearly breaking 
all kinds of guidelines and rules to persecute Michael Cohen in some desperate effort to pin something on Donald Trump. The other fork in the road is that like there's a very high evidentiary bar to clear to get permission to do this kind of thing and that there is something that we do not know, something that is more damning than some payments from a Swiss pharmaceutical company that has convinced judges and FBI officials and so on and so forth that they should authorize these extraordinary type measures. I, you know, and they were already up on Cohen's email before these raids. Right. So that is a potential source. I, 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 I have my I have my view on where this stands, but it does it, it it pushes you in one direction or another. I think I think a lot of the times in these Trump scandal stories, like what one wants to do is have like a high minded you know, stance of agnosticism that like there is no deep state conspiracy against Trump, but we have no idea like if Mueller's investigation will amount to anything at all. But like here, they either have some kind of really suspicious they have some information that we don't know about that's very damning, or else people are really breaking the rules. Sounds like sounds about right. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank uh, our our engineer, uh, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. I would also like to alert you to the fact that we'll be doing another Ask the Weeds Anything show shortly. Uh, So if you go to the Weeds Facebook group, you can see a thread there and chime in with your questions. Uh, You can also, you know, try to find us uh, some other ways, but we encourage participation in the Facebook group. This is the only notification you are getting about this round of Ask Weeds Anything. So if you have a question... Please go to the Facebook group, join the Facebook group, and put it in that thread by the 14th. Yes, yes. Ask us things, anything. Um, And with that, we will be back next week. Mm